wanted to ask you if you have ever heard of uh, a Mexican psychiatrist named Salvador Roquette. Yes. He did some uh, extensive work with, uh, with uh, psychedelics. So the real question is, hey, have I heard about a, a Mexican psychiatrist named Dr. Roquette, um, yet, who worked with psychedelics uh, in Mexico, I believe in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, so I have heard about him, not much. It's interesting, um, that quote from Houston Smith is from an article when he writes about his experience with Dr. Roquette in Mexico, where he felt um, the whole, the, set, the setting was to set up this incredible destruction of the self, and then have this gentle rebuilding of it during this process. Um, so that's my, that's all I know about it, but I've heard a lot of things about it. All right, so the question is about what kind of spirituality did our subjects endorse, and did we screen for that? So we didn't screen for that. I mean, I, I kind of assume everybody has a spirituality. So when I include that in, in the set, I, I include that as some sort of maybe system of belief or experiences, either chosen personally or kind of adopted from parents, that someone kind of emulates and that kind of affects their experience with things. Um, so it, with that in mind, I mean, we've treated people who, are, who um, you know, um, define themselves as Jewish, as Buddhist, as Catholic, as agnostic. Um, people would switch back and forth. I'd say it's fairly wide range. Um, you know, comes in naturally to this kind of work, uh, working kind of with end-stage cancer folks, regardless of the power of a psychedelic experience. So, I mean, spirituality is on the table. Everybody's, you know, we're wrestling kind of with the big questions. You know, what does this mean? Thank you for that. Yeah, I missed the first part of this. You yes. said at the end, all 11, 11 clients, they all reported benefits. <clears throat> what were the parameters used to measure? Yeah, so we have we don't haven't done any we haven't done any data analysis yet. I'm just their subjective report after coming in. No one said, hey, this was a really bad experience. There's been no adverse effects. Everybody felt they would do it again. They said it was beneficial. Generally, they felt more relaxed, less anxious. So you there know, was no anxiety pre-tests. There, there, we have anxiety measures beforehand and afterward. We haven't completed the study yet, so we haven't analyzed that data yet. So, okay, I'm yeah. wondering, were these were all psilocybin naive subjects? No, some were, some weren't. I don't believe anybody had actually ever taken psilocybin. I know I can remember at least one or two of the subjects had tried mushrooms at some point in their life. It seems a lot gentler when using LSD. Yeah, I think I think psilocybin is a much better choice with end-stage cancer folks because it's a shorter duration of duration of effect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I used to in college. I was on a team that would talk people down from bad trips. Oh, right. right. And uh, never had to talk anybody down from psilocybin, mescaline sometimes, mm -hmm. mostly from the vomit, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, definitely else. Well, you could have given the first part of my talk then. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask a little bit two-part question. One was, uh, if you know anything about, I just know a little bit about the uh, the, the history, or at least rumors, that there were government uh, studies where people were not consented uh, with hallucinogenic uh, mm -hmm. research. And then the other part of it, of my question, has to do with, regardless of whether they're naive or not, it's your responsibility to instruct them about what they may expect. I, I understand that ethically. But I also I also question 
I, I'm just curious, how do you how do you handle the, their expectation, regardless of whether they're they're naive or not to hallucinogenic drugs, their expectation that they are going to have a spiritual experience, that they may experience synesthesia uh, or any of these things. How how does one one handle that? Because it seems like niacin would not be uh, <laughs> Would not would not control for mm-hmm. for that adequately. I'm just curious. Those two those, those are my two questions. So the first question about you know giving where did the government give people psychedelics without telling them they were on psychedelics? Now I have no way of knowing that or yes or not. You know so I don't have that information, but I have heard that rumor. I do know that there was um, an internist named Eric Cast who was a, a pain specialist who treated patients with really bad pain with LSD you know, basically just giving them an injection and coming back later to see if the, the pain was better. And he actually published really good results. So I do know there was a, a time in research when psychedelics were administered without really understanding um, what was going on. That was in the very, very early days that happened, so I wouldn't be surprised. Now, the second question, remind me again, so I can answer. It, it was about the placebo. Okay. Just about, yeah, about how to, how do you, so preparing how do you for, control for that expectation? Yeah, I think what we've learned in this process is that niacin is not an effective placebo against psilocybin, okay? Um, it's just, it's, it's so obvious when someone's not on, not on psilocybin or on niacin, almost. There's probably, there was two individuals, we don't know which was the psilocybin because they must have had relatively kind of mild effects. But both of their sessions, they felt kind of the emergence of some material, ability to get some perspective, and kind of some comfort after spending the time with us, you know? The other thing we're not controlling for is the effect of, you know, doing a five, six-hour session, you know, with two therapists and a very, another very therapeutically-minded um, research volunteer. And just the whole process of doing this kind of pilgrimage in to come in twice to kind of work on this um, kind of rite of passage. So... Um, Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, the FDA would be totally open to, to changing the scheduling of psilocybin if there's good evidence out there. I mean, psilocybin isn't abused on the street, you know. Um, there's some other safety studies that have been done. So I think it's a possibility. We have to demonstrate how it can be done safely and effectively. You know, and it's, it's clearly not for everybody, but psilocybin. Yeah, so there's some people have these ideas that maybe there'd have to be... So the question is, hey, it seems like you can't, this wouldn't be a medication you can just prescribe and take home with you and take by yourself. Yeah, that's a very astute observation. So there's some, I mean, I've heard some people conceptualize this concept of a treatment center where someone would go in for a session, and this would be with somebody who has a special training or expertise in facilitating the psychedelic experience. Maybe that would be an MD, maybe not, right? And then afterwards, you know, there'd be integration kind of through therapy or whatever kind of spiritual work they're doing. So it, it's not a very, it, 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 one thing about, I think, psychedelics, you know, it kind of defies um, the Western paradigm of medicine, you know, so we have, to, we have to rethink a lot of things. There's also some folks who feel like, hey, these things shouldn't be in the hands of physicians. They're really more spiritual aids and really belong in the hands of um, kind of spiritual leaders and such, and that's how it is in other societies, you know. Can you describe um, what some of the interventions of the guides or the support staff were, what issues arose, did the subject request their intervention, did they okay. intervene on their own? So this question is, hey, what, what came up sitting for the subjects? So we haven't had to intervene at all for anything, okay? All we've had to do is occasionally when I have to go to the bathroom, remind them, please take your time standing up, knock if you need us, 
there has, there's been no agitation, there's been no paranoia. Um, one subject at one point during a check-in said, whoa, this is coming on really intense, I didn't realize it could be this rocky, I'm a little fearful. And Charlie said, hey, you know, it can be a little intense in the beginning, it's fine. You need to check back in in five minutes. We kind of then changed the music to a little bit more gentle music. She went back in for the rest of her session. And that was just verbalized to us. So there's really virtually very little dialogue between Minimal dialogue. Minimal dialogue during that actual experience. And that's kind of based on the work that Groff did, Panky, saying, hey, let's let this medicine uh, do its own work. And one more quick question. Did, uh, did any of the participants report no alteration in, in uh, consciousness? Or yeah, you know, I haven't looked through all the, that, that, a, that, that altered um, states of consciousness scale, but, the, you know, the one subject, that, there's two subjects that was very, everybody was not sure which one was which. I wouldn't say they were very altered, you know, versus some subjects were quite altered during the check-ins. They would say it, well, you know, the... I can see some colors, this and that. The other thing is, there's some people who believe by putting on the eye shades and listening to the music, there's less incidence of the kind of um, sensual kind of um, phenomena, and that allows for more of the kind of psychological benefit. That's another reason to keep the eye shades on and just use internal stimuli um, versus being out here and things like that. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a way of affecting set and setting. You know, often folks who have these bad experiences on psychedelics, it's like, you know, they're buying a drug, they don't even know what it is, from a drug dealer at 2 o'clock in the morning in, the, in a back alley. They take it, they don't know the onset of action, next thing you know they're trying to find their car and there's all this, I mean, it's a horrific experience when you, you have an altered level of consciousness. So, I mean, it's, it's really that influential um, with it. So realistically, that's why we really make sure people are comfortable with us, with the hospital. And there's really, they're quite comfortable in the setting. So. So it makes our job really kind of easy. The hardest thing for us is recruiting patients. Well, it, yeah, so his, his question is, hey, you know, um, did the double blinding fail because of this? I'm not actually sure because, you know, it takes some time for the psilocybin to have its effect anyhow with, you know, all these other things we're talking about. Again, I'm not sure if it means a failure. I think maybe it doesn't fit the paradigm of a placebo-controlled study. Now, I think... Um, you know, at the Hopkins study, they actually used Ritalin as the placebo, and they, <laughs> and they told people they were getting either, like, one of, like, six drugs, you know, either psilocybin or Ritalin, DM, I don't remember what it was. So they really did this elaborate uh, method to kind of keep the blind. And then they even did these interviews with the sitter and the patient, having them report did they think this was active session or placebo session, and they were so off base on it. So they kind of really did this huge kind of elaborate way to kind of keep it blind or at least show that it was blind. But it's, to me, I think the effect of the medicine is still there either way. You know? And the other thing is we're looking at acute measures of anxiety and pain too. We're kind of hoping some of that will separate out. You know, so. It's like a challenging thing. It's, yeah, it's, you're going to ask them later what they feel. And if they know what medication they got. Right, they no, of course. Like yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The other thing, this is, a fee, this is also a feasibility study. Right. You know, so that's, you know, we're not going for an indication. You know, just showing, it's really kind of a, a, a you know, is it stage one feasibility study? If I just add one thing, if I remember right, I think the Johns Hopkins people, I think with the Ridley, it was like over 50% of the people with just the Ridley had a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, they had some on the scales? Uh, it was, I, I forget how high the number went, but I remember being jaw-dropping figures. Right. I'm wondering about movement. 
Because my experience in working with people on psychedelics is uh, the ones who don't physically move around have a bad time. From its experience, kind of sitting with people having bad trips, you know, movement's important to like work out things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point for someone who's agitated, you know, who needs to move. But we're preparing these folks that this is what's going to happen. You know, we're going to be laying in this bed, you know, they've seen the bed before, with the eye shades, you know, with the music, we're right here all the time. And there was one person who actually had quite a lot of psychedelic experiences who really kept pulling on the eye shades, wanted to look out the window, wanted to do a lot of those that distracting kind of thing, and she took a lot more redirection to stay um, with the process, which she finally did. So, um. how long did you wait between crossing people over and getting across over? Yeah, you know, my opinion, there really is no residual psychedelic effect beyond a day or two. I mean, that's kind of like where I'm looking at it. You know, um, certainly no. Okay. You know, so I think it's either two or three weeks is what we're doing. Right. I, I don't. Not with psilocybin. But in terms of integrating into one's life or sort of the longer-term one's Yeah, that's going to be very hard to argue what, what is like that. You know, again, that's not one of our outcome measures, so I don't think that's important. But that, I mean, that, I think about that myself kind of in the study. You know, ideally there'd be matched controls, right? But that we just felt it wasn't ethical to ask people to come in for a placebo at this stage in their life. That's why everyone is serving as their own placebo. So I think you, that's the downside. You know, yeah, that will help with recruitment too, of course. And yeah, sure. There's people are coming in thinking that there may get something that can help them. You know, yeah. But your intervention probably would help them. Uh, well, I don't know. We've never done it that way. Right. Yeah. 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 We actually the FDA allowed us to relax the criteria from terminal to advanced which generally means a, a, a note from their oncologist saying, you know, advanced cancer. There's though some argument about terminal meaning 12 months or not. There's many folks who are beyond treatment who live, who aren't, don't have a cancer that is that acute. So, for example, several folks we've treated with ovarian cancer who eventually probably will succumb to fluid overload. Um, and so basically the hypothesis is that this therapy would increase their general being. Help with anxiety associated with that diagnosis, kind of. What were the prescriptions that you were contraindicated? Well, it depends on the psychedelic, but certainly I think um, you're warranted to avoid MAOI inhibitors with any psychedelic that has MAOI activity. The most prominent of that would be ayahuasca, which is a, a kind of a fine beverage from the Amazon or um, DMT compounds, you know. I also think people with cardiac disease should avoid MDMA. Those are the two, two biggest ones. I just have one thing, and that um, kind of touches on what the gentleman over there said about um, the sort of legal issues and what are the sort of future directions you think these kind of studies are headed towards? Well, I mean, I think this could be beneficial for anybody getting a diagnosis of cancer. I mean, the irony is, you know, it, we're more likely to be allowed to do research on folks who are, you know, beyond treatment. That's this kind of strange. Um, value in our medical research system, you know. Um, hopefully, you know, we can demonstrate this is very safe and then we could treat anybody just for the existential concern of hey, what am I going to do? What does this mean about my life? How does this reorganize me? So I'd like to look at, you know, any kind of anxiety you know, associated with a kind of a life change. You know, still ruling out, you know, lifelong access one anxiety disorders. You know, so the idea of, you know, this kind of situational um, thing. And cancer is such kind of a heavy diagnosis even today, though it means so many different things to different people. You know? It's really ubiquitous. Okay.
So generally with psilocybin, there's a slight increase in heart rate and a slight increase in blood pressure at about hour one or hour two. So we're looking at that. Also, I didn't put it in, in, in the slide. Everybody is getting a cardiac monitoring um, for the duration of it. There hasn't been anything, you know, on there. So that's generally a slight bump. You know, one thing we have noticed when we're just kind of watching the vitals is you don't get that bump with the niacin. You know, but some people don't get a bump with the psilocybin. So. Oh, the question, are patients on IVs? Yeah, there's no IVs. Yeah, there's no IVs. And there hasn't been any intervention necessary for any of any of these folks who are really, I should say, quite medically frail, you know, um, by the way. Yes, the question is how to recruit. It's been a long time, I and mean, we started this, this study was open for recruitment in 2004 when I was a um, third-year resident. And I'm flying down there this weekend to help finishing up right now. So, um, you know, it's been a lot of word of mouth. Unfortunately, we could only take English speakers for this study, so that majority of the patients kind of on the psych CNL service and receiving um, kind of their oncology treatment at Harbor are, are Latinos. That, that wiped out a lot of folks. Um, and um, there really wasn't that much openness among, uh, I think, oncologists in the area, you know, to the study. Most of it, I think, was being open to allow us the time to explain to them what this might offer their patients, you know, everyone just being so busy and things like that. So, you know, um, two subjects have been referred by two other different subjects. Um, one subject I met on CNL. Actually, I, was, I wasn't on CNL, but one of the other residents knew that I was on CNL. It was a woman who just got diagnosed with advanced um, uh, breast cancer. She diagnosed the pathological fracture of her hip. And she had heard about the study somewhere, had no idea about the cancer, and just so she wanted to do it. And then other people, just a clinical, you know, clinical trial with the website. Shared um, the one person was referred from another um, psilocybin study. Oh, by the way, she was really hoping that it would help with the OCD too, not just the cancer and the anxiety when she was coming up. That really was her primary motivation getting to the study. So it's just been really, really, um, you know, slow. There's been some people who didn't make it because they passed away before we got them in. There's been some people who didn't want to go off their narcotics. There was one person who, when they saw Harbor UCLA, this county hospital, was like, there's no way I'm admitting myself into there. I mean, <laughs> just looking at it, so, yeah. I think if it wasn't, you know, end-stage cancer, just any cancer, I think it'd be a lot easier to recruit, or even folks who had recovered from cancer. The other thing that makes it hard is we can't have any cardiac disease, any significant uh, organ involvement and they have to have advanced cancer originally for the first three years with less than one year to live. So how do you get somebody who's just about to die from an advanced disease who is totally medically stable? So it's a bit of a catch-22 in the beginning. So this, this last two years have done a much better job recruiting and also they removed hypertension. Hypertension was a rule out and we got that changed to treated hypertension. So. Yeah, I would love to do that. I speak Spanish, you know, so. It would require all the whole team to speak Spanish, though. This isn't something <coughs> you can do kind of halfway with them. <coughs> I mean, it would push my Spanish skills. I've done psychotherapy in Spanish, but not your, nearly as <coughs> adapt. <laughs> your instruments also aren't all available right. in Spanish translation. Yes. But I think that altered state of consciousness was, re was actually translated from German to English. So couldn't we just get that German to... <laughs> Spanish? Well, I mean, that's a German instrument, right? Your <coughs> translation is yeah. a little dicey. But it can be done. Yeah. You'd, you'd have to get the psilocybin into the black forest or 
Right, right. Great. Okay, so well, let's thank uh, <coughs> Fritz again for...